That's poetic. That is poetic. Okay. I think it's time for us to deliver our ratings. Okay. So, I'll go first. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I give this movie a big old zero with some uh, little spiky things coming off of it. Oh my gosh, that's actually really similar to what I put. Um, <laughs> it almost sounds like you're describing what I'm going to... So I gave this movie one wreath. And it can be any kind of wreath you want. A holiday wreath, a Christmas wreath, if you oh, want to yeah. be specific. Um, because the circular shape represents uh, eternity, for it has no beginning and no end. Nice. And, uh, and I really I like that idea. And it's the holiday season. It's past Thanksgiving, so now it's officially... I'm okay Christmas. with people talking about Christmas. <laughs> so, um, you know, you can hang that one, you know, hang that one right on the front door of uh, this movie. I so, will. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, dude, really enjoyed talking about this movie. I love deep, like diving into these ideas. And uh, I hope that our listeners enjoyed it as well. Uh, shout outs, Tony Stank at Tortzitzi on Twitter. Appreciate you for uh, requesting a movie. Anyone else out there, you got something you want to hear us talk about? Send us that tweet. Uh, but I think we are done with this one. So for Affable Chat, I'm Benjamin. And I'm Joey. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Affable Chat. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We would really appreciate it. If you have a question, comment, or want to request something for us to talk about, you can reach us at our Twitter account, at Affable Chat, or our email, affablechat at gmail.com. Once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hello. Welcome to Affable Chat. My name's Benjamin, and I'm joined by Joey. Hey, how's it going? And today, we're talking about the movie Arrival, which was recommended to us by one of our listeners, Tony Stank, at Tortzitzi on Twitter. So thank you for recommending this to us. Yes, thank you. This is a sci-fi drama. Directed by Denis Villeneuve. Nuave. Yeah. Uh, the cast includes Pan from the Office, Hawkeye, and Forrest Whitaker. Oh, well, Pan from the Office, also known as the, the uh, protagonist of Sharp Objects, because she doesn't actually play Pam on The Office. But I watched this movie on YouTube. Joey, how did you watch it? I watched it on the Google Play services. All right. Uh, why don't you go ahead and give us that synopsis? Okay. Aliens arrive on Earth and help a woman remember some stuff that already happened and some stuff that hasn't happened yet. Yes. And that's actually, as far as our uh, synopsis go, a lot of times they're like really... Way more vague. <laughs> yeah, way more vague and really, yeah, not like focusing on a part of the movie that's not the main focus but i think this one actually does a good job of summarizing it yeah uh, i think they all do <laughs> <laughs> well this one especially uh joey what did you what did you like about arrival i liked everything about this movie um it's really incredibly deep and effective it's a totally original story um it's really interesting and there's all these ideas in it that are not explored by basically anything else um there really is a really complex movie and it's aided by its cinematography by its direction and its editing and nearly every frame is just a gorgeous photograph that has so much symmetry and symbolic meaning and the ending just has this unbelievably uplifting message that has left like a really good feeling in me the last couple days yeah i agree especially with your uh nearly every frame is a gorgeous photograph with symmetry and symbolic meaning like these they have this dreamy, ethereal cinematography that they combine with this um, like elegant orchestra music that create like truly beautiful scenes. And I'm not like just truly beautiful. Like you could almost take the uh, so many frames out of this movie and just they are moving. Uh, yeah. And you combine that with the amazing soundtrack. It's just there's it's just amazing. Um, I one of my favorite things about this movie also is that Amy Adams is the star. She does a lot to carry this movie and she's an amazing actress. Yes. Really. Uh, like I know that, I mean, this movie really focuses on her and Jeremy Renner, but it's really Amy Adams. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, uh, bravo 
to her performance. Uh, this is a non-linear story. Or it has aspects of a non-linear story, which I really, I like that genre of movie, I guess. I'm not sure if that's really a genre as much as it like an attribute of a movie, but mm-hmm. I do really uh, enjoy thinking non-linearly. Uh, I also think this is a fresh take on Alien Encounters, where it's less about uh, see, having to see scary aliens or have them kill people or any of that. It's... Uh, you know, it's it's more about the mystery of the unknown. Where do they come from? All that kind of stuff. Um, this movie does a good job of showing, not telling. For the most part, there's one big uh, part of the exception. movie that's yeah, exception in this movie that's that's different. But uh, for the most part, they they let you view it and draw your own conclusions. And uh, and I, I think that when they do explicitly explain things, they do a good job of it, so that anybody can understand something like. I mean, we all speak, but I'm not sure language is exactly everybody's uh, strength. And mm. uh, as far as knowing all about the technic, the technical yeah, the parts technical of it, details of how linguistics works. Right, exactly. Um, so, and also just the amazing reveal at the end. It's one of those movies where you're mm. like, "Oh, dude, you have to see it for like the <laughs> twist." Like, you uh, just I don't... think it's one of those movies you have to see more than once. That too, I agree with that too. Um, so we just poured, showered praise on this movie. <laughs> Could you possibly come up with anything you didn't like? Yeah, so kind of uh, piggybacking off of what you just said about like the linguist stuff, there I feel like there are some ideas in this movie that are really complicated and are not as accessible to other people. A lot of the stuff that they talk about, I feel like personally, I have heard a lot about just because I'm really interested in you know, like cutting edge science and like you know research into psychology and stuff. So um, that kind of thing really like stood out to me and i'm also really interested in time and time travel and things like that so this movie really does like kind of speak to me personally mm-hmm. um but so i'm not sure if it's accessible to everyone um and i think there are some parts of it that are a little bit a little bit vague to the point where it's hard to understand exactly what's going on but i think they do a really good job of like letting you know how it all works and how it all fits together so um i think it is a movie for everyone but use something that you may have to see more than once to really appreciate. And also, there's a couple of parts of it that are like the CGI. I feel like it doesn't hold up, won't hold up in a few years. But like they do this whole thing with the smoke. Every time you see smoke in a movie, and it's like a CGI movie, that's like a that's like a red flag for me. That's like smoke is one of the easiest things to animate. Ah, so, so they're kind of covering it's like a way up. of obscuring things. Hmm. But. I mean, I don't know. The, the the aliens in this look good, and like the their their aesthetic structure isn't that important, really. It's really unique and interesting. Um, and I think you know maybe in ten years it won't look at quite as good as it does today. But there are so many other aspects of the movie, like the shells that look incredible. They look like they're just. I mean, they're just suspended in midair, and they look like they belong right there in like the whatever Montana. Like, was it Montana? Right. It was Montana. Uh, like that whole planes and everything. It just looks like it belongs there. It's so cool. Right. And, and I think obviously we are working hard to get some solid cons in here, but allow me to play a little defense for the movie in that they do a good job of not focusing on the alien being itself being the most important aspect yeah. of this movie. Right. It's yeah. not, it's not like predator or alien. We are like, Oh my God, did you see it? You know? And if, if, <laughs> if, if it like, you know, in the future you look back on it, it's like, eh, now I don't think that that's cool. That cool. They don't have to look cool. Right. The, the, I, the ideas that are in this movie will, you know, yeah. is what's susp- like propels it forward. And it's just aliens as the conduit. Right. Right. Um, I also c- couldn't really come up with a lot of things that I think are bad. I, I don't think this is really a con. It just kind of frustrated me the way that the army guys, basically all the guys that were part of the government, like basically everyone who wasn't Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner, they're so close-minded about this process they're going about. They're like, like we need to know, we need to ask them what they're doing here now. And it's like, okay, well, we we literally don't know any words that we could use about. And they're like, that's not good enough. Like we need to, it's like, okay. And, and again, that, that's their that's supposed to be what they do, right? It adds a lot to the, just the, the, the pressure and the, uh, the conflict to have this timetable that they're on. They're kind of racing against the rest of humanity to reach some sort of 
like knowledge transfer between them and the alien before the rest of humanity collapses around them and goes crazy. So yeah, yeah. obviously, obviously that they were neat. They needed to be this way, but I, I just felt like there were definitely some times, especially with the direct dialogue uh, from Forrest Whitaker, where it just was like, ah, don't, why are you so dense? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like, I think, I don't think this movie paints humanity in a very good light, mm-hmm. honestly. And I think they're, those guys are just a reflection of that as well. Right. So, I get it. I get it. And I, I, it works. But It is frustrating, um, though. I, is, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, okay. But that's our pros and cons. So let's go ahead and move into our overall section. Joey, okay. how about you go first? How about you <laughs> Buckle enlighten in. us? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I, I absolutely love this movie. And the more times I watch it, the more I love it. Um, this is a story that is so suited for the screen. It's mind-bending and engaging, and it brings you in so seamlessly uh, with this incredible, anticipating score. The score is by a guy named Johan Johansson, um, who wow, that guy was made to write like orchestral yes, music. Yes, he was. <laughs> he he actually died earlier this year, but he did all sorts of really cool. He did a bunch of scores for like movies like uh, Prisoners, The Theory of Everything, Sicario, which is another um, Dennis Ven. What's his name? Dennis Villeneuve uh, movie, Sicario. Mm. So he's worked with him before. But this, uh, just like the shells in the bodies of the heptopods and their language in the movie, the score and the story have this asymmetrical, strange alien feeling. And it's not clear if there's like a beginning or end to either of them. And it's just uh, so beautiful. Wow, I like that, Joey. (laughs) The story is about aliens, but our protagonist, Louise Banks, is our is an unusual hero. She is um, reserved and brilliant academic, but it's not the first person you would think of when you think of aliens visiting Earth. Um, but after this movie, it seems like the most uh, logical choice, and she proves her worth over and over again in this movie, not just because she's exceptional, but because a linguist makes sense to have in a situation like this. You know, you think, oh, you need scientists, you need people that speak the language of math and stuff. It's like, no, you need to just like Jeremy Renner says, or tries to say, like, science is the cornerstone of techno- of society. Yeah, and uh, she says, no, languages. And, you know, that, there's, some, there's nothing more fundamental than that, so she's got a good point. Um, so told through her eyes, through uh, Louise Banks' eyes, Amy Adams, you see her perspective shift as she starts to lose grip on time. You, the audience, travel with her, and you take each twist and turn at the end, it all just kind of falls into place. There's this one scene that I absolutely love. I think it's just so perfect. It's bef- right before you see the aliens for the first time. Um, you're, like, you're sitting on the edge of your seat to this. The world is just turned upside down um, so when they're about to enter the, the shell for the first time. You know, the, something that they always take it for granted, gravity, is called into question. Um, and then it requires a literal change of perspective as they enter the shell. Um, before them lies this perfectly white screen representing the immense possibilities these visitors from space can offer. And the music swells, and the characters in the audience sit on the edge of their seat to see the aliens for the first time. And the music is just so strange and tense, and it's just a little too loud. Oh, man, it's just the perfect amount of anticipation. Um, and it, and the thing is, like, I was think, I was watching this, like, oh, man, there's a lot of build-up to this. And I'm like, no, it's worth it. Like, <laughs> it is. It's building to, oh, like, it's not doing enough. Like, to say how like revolutionary i guess the things that they're presenting in this movie are the amount of anticipation that they put toward it like the i don't know how long it takes it probably takes about 20 to 30 minutes before you see the aliens for the first time that's not enough like (laughs) they could drag it out longer and it would still be worth it well yeah especially because it's it's all about that mystery it's all about the anticipation you have no idea what to expect especially with the way that they get in there they take a scissor lift Mm -hmm. into this hallway where gravity goes sideways like Super cool, and also the the first time they enter the chamber is they're upside down, or at least from the camera's perspective, they're walking on the ceiling. Yeah. And when I saw that, I guess I didn't even realize that or like notice that the first time I watched it, but this time I watched it, um, and it, it seemed way more intentional because mm. you they they're not upside down, right? It's just a choice to put the camera upside down to kind of emphasize that the perspective change that's exactly. going to happen when you're in here, and I just think. I was like, God, it's so cool. It's so, it's, it's like, so cool. it's so subtle, but so well thought out. So. It's amazing. Um, and yeah, exactly. Like, like this whole idea, the whole thing that they structure this movie around, it's just so, uh, I mean, it's hard to imagine any other way. And it's uh, amazing. Just this perfect vision that comes to, to fruition. Um, so 
to continue, the movie engages you on this deep and moving ideas, um, but it never really loses its grip on reality. There's so much emphasis on the process of bringing Louise in, the suits that they wear, how they get into the ship, the medical tests that they run. There's this constant flip back to um, how the people are reacting. So the movie really roots itself in the real world, despite it trying to engage you in this like conceptual like uh, world. And yeah, so I mean, to kind of conclude here, there is this thesis that the movie presents and not about language, not about time. Um, but about life itself that I find really, really powerful. And this is something I didn't get the first couple times I watched it. Um, at the end, you see Louise make a choice again to have an, a daughter that will die before she can grow up. Um, but you see Louise make this choice not because of the pain it will cause her and her family, but because of the joy it will bring all three of them. Clearly, this movie is saying that the joy of life outweighs the pain. It's better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all. And she has this quote, it says, despite knowing the journey and where it leads, I embrace it and I welcome every minute of it. This movie, by its very nature, is meant to be viewed many times, just like Louise in the story. Knowing the ending only makes you appreciate the path to the end all the more amazing. Well put. I, I totally agree. The first thing I did when I finished this movie was jump back to the, to the beginning so I could hear... Uh, some of the things that she said and kind of see things with a new perspective, a fresh yeah. perspective, because there's so much throughout this movie that in the moment is just complete mystery because you don't know why you're seeing it, especially the flashbacks to having a child. I mean, you think it's a flashback, but it's just, it's once not, you know, <laughs> yeah. Once you know, you're like, Whoa. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's all these little hints in there. Like she, they ask her if she's pregnant and she says she's not or whatever. And she talks to Jeremy Renner and says that she's single and you're like, but didn't she like so she's single now like she well she yes she, yeah, she, she really heavily implies that she's single as a result of some sort of communication breakdown almost yeah. when she's like you can understand language and still be single like and it, <laughs> you know it's like wow what a, what a bitter divorcee thing to say right. but she wasn't yet which Not is yet. Uh, so good such so such good camouflage um okay yeah it's good well um i think arrival like I said, it tells the story of First Contact in a fresh way. Instead yeah. of wowing us with explosions and scary aliens, this movie frightens us with the unknown. And I don't really think that its main intention was to frighten, but that's definitely an aspect of mystery, is uh, you know that fear of the unknown. The, the movie dangles hints right in front of us, but does a good enough job of hiding the truth uh, until the end so that we can all enjoy that moment of euphoria when we realize the power that has been bestowed on uh, Dr. Banks. Mm. The movie does this by opting to show more than tell most of the time. Uh, an, an example of this is the bird inside of the shell. Uh, they never explicitly say that the bird is there uh, or why the bird is there, but just by watching the movie and the way they show Amy Adams looking at the bird before she takes off her suit, you can conclude the bird is there to test the atmosphere. The bird is there to test to see if things can live in this area that they've never been in. Uh, so that's just one really specific example, but it's done throughout this movie. Another great example is the flashbacks or flash forwards that we see. It's not explained why you're seeing these things or why in some of them you're not hearing anything or why there's you can hear very specific things in them. You're you're left to draw your own conclusions, which yeah. makes... Well, let me interject for just a second. Yeah, like, yeah. To, to talk about the, the bird thing, like the bird is used for that one purpose, but it's also used in many other ways throughout the movie. There's that part where it starts chirping in her dream. There's that part at the um, where she's having the flash forwards and her daughter has the picture of the bird and it all becomes clear like what that is. There's so many things that are used and reused throughout the movie that um, just kind of fits everything together like a nice little puzzle. It's just really, really well crafted. It is. And it, it just it makes the movie way less obvious. Like you, There is a way to tell this mm. story in a way more straightforward and exp like explicit explanatory way i don't think that's a word but a way that you no, yeah, just yeah, yeah. you you'd lay it all down there and it would be way less intriguing it, by showing you these things and saying you know you gather the evidence uh it makes it a lot more engaging and and just adds a lot more value to the reveal uh the major break from this showing not telling uh, story uh, design is the around the 53 minute mark Jeremy Renner uh, graces us with his uh, beautiful voice on a uh, <laughs> when he does a little bit of a mo monologuing would you say it's like a journal yeah like, it's know? like a, like a it's scientist an, it's narration. journal 
Yeah. Yeah. Narration where he explains a bunch of their findings up until that point, which I don't know if you could say it was unavoidable, but I think they spent so much time showing and not telling that at this point they're like, all right, to progress the film and get us to where we need to go, Jeremy Renner is going to like explain a bunch of stuff that's not necessarily required to know, but it, it catches you up to where these scientists are after all the stuff they've done. You know, it, it pushes you forward. Um, and while they do that, they explain a lot of stuff that I think is cool. Uh, like they talk about the uh, nonlinear uh, sentence structure. Yeah. Uh, and the, uh, what do they call that? It's a se- semi-sciographic. Yeah. Yes, that's that's it. Semi is it semi-sciographic or semi-sciographic? It yep. conveys meaning but doesn't represent a sound. Stuff like that, where yes. it's just like you know, it's interesting uh, stuff about language that I hadn't come across outside of this movie. So it's you know, that's it's in that sense, it's still interesting, even though they are literally sitting you down and saying, "Here's how it is," uh, unlike the rest of this movie. Uh, and then they get right back to it after that, uh, where they let you kind of see and draw your own conclusions for the rest of the movie. Um, but yeah, and 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 when they when they do get back to it, that's when the truly mind blowing stuff starts happening. Uh, with like them giving them their portion of the language, and Doctor Banks going into the white cloudy part of the shell. That was great. Um, so, <laughs> and, and then obviously the reveal at the end. So uh, overall, just uh, like what really blows me away is just kind of the structure of this movie, uh, and treating your audience intelligently, uh, and leading to this great, amazing reveal that demands that you watch the movie again once you've finished it so <laughs> yes. I, I, I really liked it one of the things that i wanted to kind of talk about a little bit is like how does the non-linear memory work mm. um i guess to tell you the truth i have something on this a little bit later so let's save it for there let's just keep okay. moving forward here i believe you have a cool easter egg to oh share i sure us. do <laughs> okay so we're gonna reveal our age here a little bit but neither of us knew who abbott and costello were before I, watching this race. i still don't know so Joe, well, I was, I'm, well I'm hoping... I, after doing like a little bit of googling i think i was like oh i'm should have hit myself you know face palm um they're a famous comedy duo from the 40s and 50s their most famous sketch is who's on first which is like probably the most famous comedy sketch of all time whoa have you, have you seen it i don't think so heard about this you never heard of okay you, you folks you heard must, about this you, you heard about this in the you news heard of that though the whole who's on first what's on second i don't know who's on third i no, i haven't i i've heard it's of hysterical. Abbott and i just watched it and i was like literally crying it's hilarious link um, in the description Yes. Awesome. All right. So, but but what I think is it, but I think is nice about this isn't just that they gave them kind of affectionate names from you know a classic comedy duo, but that their most famous sketch, "Who's on First, is a sketch about misunderstandings. Ah, so that is cool. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's move on. Yes. Let's move on to the quotable moments from this film, and the <laughs> the first thing you hear is my first quote. Uh, or the the first thing that you hear in the movie is the quote I chose. So uh, let's go ahead and listen to that. I used to think this was the beginning of your story. Memory is a strange thing. It doesn't work like I thought it did. We are so bound by time, by its order. But now I'm not so sure I believe in beginnings and endings. Yeah, and it's... I don't think that this part of it meant that much to me the first time I saw this movie. The first watch through, you're like, Mm. all right, that's vague. Thanks, thanks, Amy Adams. It's sad, right? It's sad, obviously, the the, the things you see. But she's... You're watching this woman... Not this woman. You're watching Amy Adams play, like, cowboys with this random little girl and she's so you know longing while she's doing it she's like she's like con- c- contemplating and it says you're like why is she so like dramatic about this mm. and, and and again it's just like a first impression kind of thing but then when you come back and watch it again once you understand what what's going on it's like just 
uh, like mind blowing. So uh, I, I just think, especially because it's just literally what's being said here, like memory yeah. is a strange thing. It doesn't work like I thought it did. Like they're just they're like, hey, this is everything the movie has to offer right here. You know, swinging in front of your face. Yeah, like sweet. Yeah, dangling it right in front of you. It's like asking you to to accept this information. Yeah. Um, but because of the way the story's told, of course you're not going to understand it yet, uh, which is super cool. And then it's it like that part. The, but now I'm not so sure I believe in beginnings and endings that is that leads into the actual beginning of the chronological events in this movie but it right. seems like they come after you know the movie scenes you just saw just like a, a linear storyline so yeah that, I cool. think that's really interesting I mean we talked a little bit about how this is a non-linear structure but that's aided by the theme in this movie which is how time is like distorted through this language so yeah I think of any movie to be told non-linearly this is probably the best one i mean like i mean i don't know if it's the best nonlinear movie that's not what i'm saying memento would like a word with you <laughs> it's, it's what i'm saying is that it's it's this structure of nonlinearity is really like just reinforces the themes that it's trying to go for in this yes. movie. so it just makes it more powerful oh yes big time okay so my quote is a exchange between ian donnelly and louise you know, I was doing some, some reading um, about this idea that if you immerse yourself into a foreign language that you can actually rewire your brain. The Sapphire-Whorf hypothesis. Mm. And the theory that, um, it, it's the theory that uh, the language you speak determines how you think and... Yeah, it affects how you see everything. It was, uh... I'm curious, are you dreaming in their language? I mean, I've had a few dreams, but I don't. I don't think that that makes me unfit to do this job. Okay, so I really, really like this thing. This is something, this is a concept called uh, linguistic relativity. And I got a couple of really good examples here. First one uh, that I think most people will be familiar with is 1984. 1984, there's a, whole, there's a whole structure in the government that is trying to reduce the vocabulary of the, um, the people in the, in the story, right? There's, uh, there's this one part where the guy says, oh, we've, we've removed like, all these adjectives. Now we're just saying plus or double plus. And since you know, something is, if you love something, it's double plus good. It's not love anymore. We've made everything so much simpler. Um, and the, 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 what they're trying to say, what Orwell is, is pitching here, is that your language determines your reality, and if you have limited language, you have limited thought. Um, and so the, the government trying to, or the society trying to uh, keep language from evolving, trying to keep language simple, uh, simplifies the thoughts of their uh, you know, people. So I thought that was pretty cool. Why use many word when few word do trick? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh kevin from the office if that's uh many <laughs> good stuff another <laughs> offers the reference offers reference whatever all right so then there's a couple other ones from radio lab which is a really really good podcast that i recommend uh the first one is from an episode called behave so strangely in which they interview a professor of psychology of language named diana deutsch um and she talks uh about how she does this experiment basically well was she studying the difference between tone languages and non-tone languages and mandarin is an example of a tone language so at the end of of that little segment her her thesis is basically that um growing up being sensitive to tone means you are more likely to be able to pick out pitches perfectly so you, people who grow up speaking mandarin are more likely to have perfect pitch than people who grow up speaking english okay and, perfect and pitch so, meaning the, they can sing let me kind of explain. So, a tone language in a tone language, um, inflection determines definition. So, like, for example, whenever we say the word like "mom," for example, say "mom," it's, that's the same word as "mom" or "mom," or uh, that's the same thing. But you know, right, right, mom. Right. You know, like, doesn't matter how you in, say it. All those inflections have the same definition. It's your mother, mm. right? Maybe those inflections uh, convey a different emotional meaning 
but the definition of the word stays the same. Right. In Mandarin and other tone languages, this is not the case. There's a word ma that if you say in different inflections, um, means different things. One of them means horse. I don't know. I don't, I can't speak Mandarin, so I'm not even going to try, but, um, one of them means horse. One of them means mother. One of them is like a reproach. So, um, that's why when you hear like Japanese or Chinese, it almost sounds kind of sing-songy. That's like mm-hmm. the, the stereotype. And it's because they are so, uh, um, they are determining tone every time they speak. So their inflection really, really matters, unlike in English. And basically the theory is that because you're sensitive to that, you're more likely to have perfect pitch. And wait, so wait, what does perfect pitch mean? You can sing? Perfect pitch means that you can pick out colors. I mean, sorry, <laughs> that's all right. You can pick <laughs> out notes out of anything. Oh, okay. So, okay, the, the example that they use in the episode is like, um, here, I have something. What color is this? I'm holding up my phone. That looks like black to me. Okay, how do you know it's black? I saw it. Right. But you didn't have to compare it to something else, right? Uh, right. Putting it next to this doesn't mean that it's any more black than it was before. You're holding it up next to a white book. Yes, I agree. Right. It's just as black as it was by itself. Yeah, so perfect people who have perfect pitch can do the same thing, but with notes. Ah, I, I see. I definitely see that. Because um, I've played a few instruments in my life, and I'm terrible at picking out notes by themselves. I almost have to have context, or else I can't pick it out. Exactly. That's what most people have to do. But... And when you, if you grow up learning a turn, tone language, you're more likely to have a uh, perfect pitch. And there's, there's a correlation. We're not sure if there's a causation, but that is the theory. That would anyway. be, what an interesting twist that would be on uh, the movie Pitch Perfect, where it's, uh, <laughs> it's about an acapella group that speaks Mandarin, and that's like the secret to their success. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <sighs> Okay, so the, there's another Radio Lab episode that also kind of goes with the same theory. It's called Bird's Eye View. And in this, a researcher immerses herself in this language that has no relative directions. So there's no such thing as right and left in this, in this language. Instead, they say, the store is to the north of the donut shop, or my house is west of here. This forces everyone to know exactly where they are and what direction they are facing. And after struggling for a little while, the researcher eventually gets it. And then when she does, she says she's living like she's in third person. She can picture herself from above with a compass in her mind that's always correct, which is freaking wild. I, I think I've actually heard this one, and I, I love this idea. And it, do, you, do you ever feel like you can kind of do that? Uh, I, f- I feel like whenever I try to do it, I'm often wrong. But there are times where I'm like in a place, and I'm like, okay, where would I, what direction would I be facing if I was mm. facing the same direction I was in a different place? Like if, if like I'm at my apartment right now, but what if I was at work If I'm facing the same direction? I try to envision that and I feel like I can't, I can envision it. And I'm like, Oh dude, that makes sense. But I'm often very wrong. Um, <laughs> so, I, okay. So first of all, um, uh, the REM song stand <laughs> is like literally this stand in the place. That you oh work. yeah. <laughs> I love that song. <laughs> Think about direction. Wonder why you haven't thought about it before. Um, wow. That second was of all, I, um, I always lose track when I'm inside of a building. When I, as soon as I enter a building, my sense of direction changes and it's always, re- it's always in reference to the exit, not to how I first entered the building. But on places I'm really familiar with, like for example, the, the college I went to, like anywhere on campus, I knew basically how far everything was from each other and what direction they were from each other, especially being there for like five years. Yeah. You've, you like get a really good idea of where everything is and where you are in relation to that. And you can think about it that way. I don't know. I do that. I did that a couple of times where we would be standing in a room and be like, all right, which way am I facing? Cause I knew where like the Capitol building was, for example, and that was really close to campus. So if I, I knew the Capitol building was North of here. So if I could orient myself that way, then I could do it. But yeah, I feel like I have a pretty decent sense of direction, but I often get lost because I think I am better than I am. Uh, well, I have an awful sense of direction. I have been so coddled by Google Maps. I, <laughs> I can't get anywhere. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. But okay, back to this. So the point that I'm trying to make is that in both these cases, your language is determining what's possible. It's, it is literally influencing the world around you. 
you know, in that first example, you are hearing music differently, which perfect pitch doesn't just apply to music, it applies to anything. You know, like the sound of a car horn, or like, you know, dropping something on the ground and it makes a noise or something, or like blowing over a bottle. Like all of those things make notes, and people who have perfect pitch can recognize those as what they are. Same thing with these, this compass thing, right? You know which direction you're facing. It kind of reorients your whole world almost, you know? I almost wonder if, like, you prefer in every room to be facing north for some reason. Like, I don't know if that's like a. I don't sure, know, like, who knows? I, I wouldn't know because I never know when I'm facing north. <laughs> these kind of things are, like, kind of minor, but you can see what's possible in the human mind with just having language. And there are, I mean, there are examples of languages that don't have future and present tense. Um, and I wonder if they perceive time differently or if they have a different attitude toward time. You know, if there's more urgency in what they do because everything is happening in relative to now instead of to the future. What's so frustrating is, I guess, as a person who really only speaks one language, I speak some Spanish, but like I'm nowhere near as close to my skill level in English. And it's like, how do you talk to somebody like that and try to figure out how they think? It'd be mm. so hard to really get an yeah. accurate look at because they're, their whole if their mindset truly is different you wouldn't be able to perceive it unless you could speak their language like a translation exactly. wouldn't cut it exactly it's more than that but i don't know I, I i think this is proof of what they're talking about in this movie you know this um this uh what's it spare uh saper wharf hypothesis um that amy adams's character mentions like it's a real thing and they're exploring it in this movie to like a, a very extreme degree yes but there's no reason why like something like this is impossible that it's it's possible that we could unlock like some powers in our brains that we did, previously didn't have just by changing the way our language works i um i can't remember exactly what who researched this or whatever but i've heard multiple times in npr where they reference the idea that being bilingual or just multilingual it co- tends to cause people to trend towards being more empathetic Hmm. and they credit your ability to uh, perceive the world the same way that other language speakers do allows you to see the world like they do and allows you to be more empathetic and and to understand their point of view uh, which i think uh, is really cool that makes a lot of sense to me yeah if you're if you are struggling to understand someone you're always gonna be looking for their intention instead of their meaning you know right instead of literally what they're saying you're gonna be looking for what they meant to say and I feel like if you did that in your everyday life, you would live a better life. Right. Well, and it, it, it makes me think about the way that this is opening up to like a much larger conversation, but like the, like the, the way that we kind of have a single language uh, culture here in the United States, mm-hmm. where even if you, like, if you're born here, you're probably, you're only going to be speaking English. And then uh, even though there are other languages here, you can get through your whole life with just speaking English. Uh, but then you have like, european cultures where people regularly will learn two or three languages because they're like well yeah obviously i you know i live here and speak english but i want to go to germany and i want to be able to get around so i'm gonna learn german too and maybe french and it's like dang it's like it seems like such an overachieving thing to go for when you're an american because you're like i struggle i struggled with english class but they they do it all when you're young and it has to change the way that they see the world um i mean yeah i mean it opens up so many possibilities you know there, I mean, there's this other uh, Radio Lab episode about translation, and they have this one example of this uh, French poem, and uh, the guy, this guy decided he was going to translate it, uh, but he translated it like, I don't know, like 150 different times, or like 500 different ways or something, and it was, I mean, so interesting because every time you hear it, it it's, its meaning changes slightly, and you kind of get an idea of what the poem is, but unless you spoke French or under or read French, you would never be able to read that poem the way it was originally written. And there's so many things like that that you can't experience because you're limited by your language. Agreed. Like there's this YouTube series. I haven't watched it in a long time, but they got famous or whatever relative level of fame off of making song remixes where they would put the lyrics into Google Translate through a few languages. Like they'd go from English to Mm. Mandarin to Spanish, you know, and then back to English. And then the song would completely change. And there'd be parts of it where you're like, oh, I recognize this part. And it's funny because, you know, they're doing it to the same tune. But yeah. it would wildly change what their, the actual meaning of the song is. And it, all it was doing was translating it through a couple of languages. So it's, it's really, 
it's almost frustrating how the like the different languages completely change your uh the way you see things the way the, yeah. the way things are understood um well let me get into my that one topic that i want to talk to we will save this for later but i think this is a good time to bring it up like there's this really interesting idea that they bring up uh which is we mentioned which is um semi-sciography yeah Man, i'm gonna mess that up anyway the idea is that it's a universal language. It's a language that conveys meaning, not words, right? Yes. And this is like this isn't this is kind of bizarre, I guess, if you're not familiar with this idea. But like, y- you're always talking through a filter, right? Your ideas in your head have to go through your mouth and out to other people, and then they have to hear it and then internalize it itself. It's not mind to mind. As much as we like to think that people know what we're thinking, they really can't, you know? You can only articulate what you're thinking, and there's, a, there's limits to that. And I think that this is probably the most powerful and thought-provoking part of this movie. It's because of the way that we communicate through sounds and not thoughts that we are so limited. Our communication with other nations in this movie, at least, is flimsy and strained. Different cultures, different attitudes, different ideas clash in the world stage. And like we are just beginning to share ideas with nations and with other nations and to experiment and mix cultures together. Um, and I don't know, like I think this is just a powerful idea. And and like this movie is positing that like it's because we are limited by our language and because we don't have some sort of universal language like the heptapods do, that we are unable to collaborate as well as we would like. And there was this guy named Charles Bliss. This is another Radiolab episode about Bliss. Um, he tried to create a universal language based on a few hundred symbols. And the, the story in the episode is, is kind of tragic, but it was a very interesting experiment. And his goal was to unite the world around a common language because he said he seemed to see, to see the world as if um, every misunderstanding, every, like, viol- every act of violence and stuff is all based on misunderstanding, mistranslations. and um, He's like, if we could all speak mind to mind, if we could all have some sort of common language, then things would be better. Um, right now, this is used uh, for kids with severe autism or kids who have like, trouble communicating um, because it's, very, it's a very intuitive language. But it, um, it's being used incorrectly, according to Charles Bliss. Bliss says that it should be used instead of languages, but they are using it to translate to English or to other languages. So, in a way, it's kind of being corrupted because it's not like, it's not being used for its its exact purpose. But, I mean, something like this would be so hard to do, you know? Trying to implement some sort of universal language. So hard. Especially when people are so defensive about their own culture. It's like, because I I think there's definitely a a sect of people just here in the States who would be like, this sounds like globalism. You're trying to, like, you're trying to take away our country. Take take away our culture. I don't understand the, I don't understand what's so bad about globalism. (laughs) That's, only a globalist would say something like that. Head on down to (laughs) www.affablechat.com purchase your pharmaceuticals. 20% off right now. (laughs) We'll get to Alex Jones in a minute. Protect yourself <laughs> from the globalists. I think that I, well, just because you brought it up, I think that there's this interesting idea that Sam Harris brings up in one of his TED Talks. He says um, he has this kind of, I want to say crusade, even though that's not like the most, that's not the best word to use, but I think it fits in this situation. He, in his TED Talk, he says there are many examples of good in the world and there are peaks that are all beneficial to everyone. But there are some that are just better for other people and you know, others that are worse for other people. But he's convinced that Islam is extremely dangerous and tolerating it is a real problem. Basically, he is saying that you have this ideal of religious freedom, but that common sense should play a bigger role in that. And countries largely influenced by Islam are so backward compared to societies in the East and West, yet it is taboo to speak against it, to say this is objectively bad for everyone. And like that, that's his whole idea. And he talks about this over and over again in, in all of his platforms. But, and I think there's like a, I think there's a point to this, but it's just bringing up this idea of like the free marketplace of ideas. If this ideal of the free marketplace of ideas really exists, then why are there still bad ideas out there? You know, why is there still anti-vaxxers and flat earthers and things? 
And I would argue it's because we are not articulate enough. It's because we are, we don't have a good enough language. I mean, that's definitely probably part of it. I mean, part of it is also people are using language to say things that just aren't true, right? <laughs> you don't need vaccines. Come on down to our website. Purchase yourself your own pharmaceuticals that'll protect you from the, the chemicals that the government is putting in the water. Yeah. But, but like, I don't know, like, that's true. But, but our ability to lie is also based on our ability to speak language. Mm-hmm. There's this um, book series I really, really like called In Remembrance of Earth. And the first one is called The Three-Body Problem. And in it, they, they meet these aliens. In the second book, it's revealed that these aliens do not have the capacity to lie. They speak mind to mind. Their mm. thoughts are projected out, and then they listen to each other. So they have no art, no culture. And they, when they discover us, they are fascinated by all the stuff that we've created. But they also have no ability to lie to us, and they tell us exactly what they're going to do when they get here. <laughs> I'm guessing it's only it's... later that they like, realize that there's even a concept of not telling the truth completely <laughs> so they're, um, they're like hey like we're on our way to like totally annihilate you guys but exactly. like cool art though <laughs> and <laughs> we're being exactly honest it. right now your art is cool <laughs> <sighs> but i think that's i think this is really interesting you know i think the ideas presented in those books are extremely compelling yeah and i think that this universal language is also like a part of that in a way this it's, may- it's like sorry, it's like the it's like elvish right like like, oh, in, um, what was it? Uh, the uh, Aragon books. There's, like, the ancient language in which it, which it was impossible to lie. You could only speak the truth. Mm-hmm. And, it, like, the, it's like this universal ideal of, like, you're speaking only your thoughts, and your thoughts can only be, like, conveyed completely, you know? You can't say, oh, buy this stuff, without also saying, I want you to buy this stuff for this reason. It uh, makes me want to revisit The Invention of Lying, starring Ricky Gervais. I've never seen it. It's, uh, it's been a while since I've seen it. I, but, I mean, just the concept itself is, is a cool premise. Is no one can lie except for Ricky Gervais, and now he has to figure <laughs> out how to, like, what that means and what, what's yeah. possible with that. So, um, but yeah, it is really cool. And, and it's, it's not exactly what you'd think of when you hear about an alien <laughs> in a, a, a first contact movie, I'll say, uh, yeah. that it would be all about language and so much about the way that we check like how much it affects us even outside of aliens definitely all right you want to get back to the quotes <laughs> <laughs> yeah somehow we're still on the quote section so let's uh let's get back to this it. one's short this one's really short two hours ago we pulled this audio off a secure channel in russia someone on the science team there was broadcasting wide in their final session the aliens said there is no time many become one I fear we have all been given weapons. If anyone is receiving this, please. This is a, um, one of the messages that the aliens send to one of the other nations, and then we get it. Um, and I think this is so great because of the double meaning it implies. We interpret it as, like, you're running out of time, you have to destroy each other or something, or like, you know, many, be- yeah, many become one and implies there's only going to be one left, right? But if you if you've seen the movie and you know how it, it all works out, that that what they're saying is it's much more less earnest or more earnest, less urgent. Yes. They're like, there is no time. Like you guys have this concept of time, it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are silly. Many become one, like you guys all need to unite to make this happen. And I love that like Amy Adams is like they're all like, Oh, this is obvious what this is, and Amy Adams is like, There's a many different ways you can interpret this. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I agree. I think it's pretty funny. Lastly, mm-hmm. I got one more. Um, I don't know, Mom. I'm watching the same news coverage you are. Well, Mom, please don't bother with that channel. How many times do I have to tell you those people are idiots? I think this is another great example of some double meaning. Like, depending on which side of the political spectrum yes. you're on, you're going to hear this and think, oh, that's definitely those guys. I know they're all idiots. That's definitely um, CNN. <laughs> but this movie does not paint people or the media in a very good light. And um, it's, it's kind of subtle, actually. Throughout this movie, the average person is shown to be impulsive, aggressive, and misinformed. 
There is massive days of looting throughout the U.S., marches on Washington because they don't like the way the government is handling the situation. And there are news shows like, excuse me, and then the news shows things like the first picture of the aliens. What does this mean? And they have, and they like, the only thing you ever see them, dis- like the only message you ever see them display on, on the meet, like on TV is offer weapon. It's like, really? That, like that's, you're just trying to stoke fear. And that's what it is. Like they're stoking the flames of unrest. And then there's Alex Jones's uh, gun loving brother uh, show. And he's like, you guys need to show, you know, there's need to be a show of force. And um, and then of course after they blow up the thing and they're arrested and everything, those soldiers are. Um, the doctor says that they were watching too much TV and that's why they did it. And I mean, this feels right. I mean, the situation is presented. It's as is presented. It's, it seems like this is a logical conclusion to assume that people would act like this. Uh, my friend Mike always used to say, people on their own can be pretty intelligent, but it's when people act in groups that they often act incredibly stupid. <laughs> is that uh, is this Magic Mike you're referring this to? This is Magic Mike. Oh, yeah. dude, shout out to Magic Mike, <laughs> dude. You, I, uh, I love that guy. Uh, but no, I totally agree. And it has a good, like, it belongs in this movie, the reaction of everybody else. Like we said, it's kind mm-hmm. of part of, like, the urgency. We have to figure this out before humanity collapses on itself. Um, so it adds a lot to the drama, but it's like, it's crazy how this, because when did this movie come out? It was, uh, 2016. Uh, 2016? That's, that's pretty timely. Because I, I, I would feel like the impact of like the uh, alarmist media, I would say, has only like grown since then. Uh, yeah. That people, like if this did happen, there'd definitely be people everywhere. Uh, well, first off, I think we probably would have hit it with a freaking nuke if it landed in Montana. <laughs> there's no way we wouldn't have. It's like, uh, uh, yeah, that's the thing. Is like that's the thing. Is like when he says off like a show of force. Like I feel like this is a very bad mischaracterization because it's such a stupid thing to to do. But I also feel like people would actually react this way. Like, I, I mean, just just the facts alone, right? They were able to appear here. Nobody knows where they came from. They just like you saw how they how they left at the very end you know they just kind of disappeared like we have not we can't possibly explain how that worked or anything like that they have technology that is way beyond us and like they're messing with gravity inside their ship they have all this control over everything like it's clear that if they want to destroy us they could but even beyond that like what do you think nuking them would ever do right like I, I've heard it described as like if aliens ever come to visit us, the difference in technology wouldn't be like machine guns versus arrows. It'd be like nuclear bombs versus sponges. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I think that that's that's accurate. Which it kind of does underplay like the um like the reaction that they have. Like it's it's fear based, right? And we don't always yeah. do things rationally when we're acting out of fear. But it's like what do you really think bombing them as C4 is going to do? There's at least yeah. 11 other ones elsewhere. If this is, if anything is just going to make them mad. So, yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, what is this? What is you doing? Like, Oh, look how strong we are. Like, Oh, look, like, look at this. You know, you just, I don't understand that. Like that doesn't work in, in like normal society. Why would it work on this grand scale scale? You know, it's just, yeah, no, it's, I mean, it I, is, it's all about the fear and it's all about it is, casting humanity in kind of this bad light. It uh, is a uh, very frustrating, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think it's good that they represented the media in this. And it was also a really easy way to show us what's going on without, I mean, they kind of show you with like news reports, but that's basically how you, per- how you perceive the world throughout this. Yeah. Also, did you notice how at the beginning when, uh, uh, Amy Adams, uh, Dr. Banks is in her house watching the news. She has like, I mean, she's a linguist, so maybe she would naturally do this, but like she had access to news channels from all these different countries. Like she was watching <laughs> Russian news in her bedroom. Like in her, was, it on her, was it on her laptop or in her? It was um, on her TV. And it was yeah. like, she was, she was listening to it while she was like sleeping. And I they, not that. they show <laughs> other news broadcasts where they don't necessarily imply that she was watching it. Like it's just showing it to you. But there, there's a Russian TV show on, in her bedroom. And it, it, like, they're saying things in Russian. There's no translation. Like it's the reporter who's speaking Russian. And I was like, <laughs> wow, she's, I mean, linguists go hard. I guess. <laughs> Gotta have all the different <laughs> language channels. How do they, yeah. How do they do that? So, uh, but yeah, okay. So where were we? Howie, <laughs> I think we're done on. with the quotes. Let's move on to. Our, oh, 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 yes. Let's, uh, let's, let's I... just go a little deeper, 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 deeper. 
Okay, so I'll, I'll go first with this one. And what I think it's just worth talking about and maybe seeing if we can nail down exactly what the extent of uh, Dr. Banks' new found abilities are in this movie. Sure. So what, if you could see your entire life, what, you, what is going to happen in the future, would you leave it to stay the same? And right, that's the question that she pauses at the very end. Yeah, and I mean, was there... And she, she argues that she, she would, that the, uh, the good times outweigh the bad and that life is worth living. But did she have the option to change it? Can we know that if she did? I don't know, but like... I don't know. It's interesting from, from that point of view. There is the original story, the story of our... Story of your life. Uh, which is like a short story written by this guy named uh, Ted Chiang, I think. Um, let me see if I can find it. Yeah, Louise saw here. This is a quote from Wikipedia. Louise saw um, glimpses of her future and her daughter she did not have. This raised questions about the nature of free will. Knowledge of the future would imply no free will because knowing the future means it cannot be changed. But Louise asked herself, what if the experience of knowing the future changed a person? What if it invoked a sense of urgency, a sense of obligation to act precisely as she knew she would? Which I think is an interesting wrench to throw into this. <laughs> well, yeah, and one of the ways that I was trying to, because it's, it's tough, right, to conceptualize this. It's like, how could you, if you can know the future, it has to be set in stone, right? Or else you can't know it. Mm. Um, but Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure plays with this idea. Have you seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? Is it the first one or the second one? The first one. Yeah, I've seen the first one. So the, the first one, towards the end, where they've really mastered time travel, and they're trying to, I don't remember exactly what they're trying to do, but they figure out that as long as they remember to go back in time and do things later, then they'll happen right now. So they were, I don't remember exactly what's going on, but there's some like, there's some goons that are in their way. Oh, yeah, sorry, they have to like leave the keys in the bushes or something. Yeah, yeah, and they come back late, like, and it happens in real time. But they like it's them and they like drop like trash cans on top of these people or something. But the way that they're able to get out of their current situation is just by looking at each other and being like, all right, let's remember to do this later. And then it happens because it's it's a uh, static timeline that yeah. they can affect. So I'm wondering if this is kind of the same thing where she has to she has to remember to like do things in the future so that they'll happen in the past. Which I think it, I don't know, like. I guess kind of it's uh, the way I was seeing it was like she was she was like feeling all of the emotion of her whole life at once like she was it was almost as if she was living every moment at the same time mm -hmm. and she can move between them at will well because like let's think about the scene where she's talking to uh general Shang mm -hmm. where he says like you you said my wife's dying words to me and in that moment she didn't know it right yeah but she was that was so cool because he was literally talking to himself through her right <laughs> you know pretty no and as a brilliant scene but what i'm saying is just like does her non-linear memory force her to live her life non-linearly as well as well wouldn't but i would argue wouldn't you want to like you could you can move to like these moments in time, you know, and, and live those as well. And like, there's all these all these moments at the very end, where like throughout the movie you see all these, um, right at least at the beginning you see her daughter dying and everything and how she reacts to that. But at the end is all these happy memories, happy memories with her and Jeremy Renner and her and her daughter. And um, it's like you're choosing to be to live in those moments and. Um, make sure that those happen you know no i get that it's uh i guess i'm just wondering if she could look at that and be like okay gonna make sure i don't have a kid with jeremy renner and have a kid with somebody else because like i'm able to avoid this and again it, it's like how you look at that maybe she she's by having a view of the whole thing she's like oh this is definitely worth it um but it's yeah. your just from a completely emotionless viewpoint, you have a kid that you know is going to have some sort of terminal illness and you bring them into your life anyway and you, know, and you have a marriage that you know is going to end badly that you start anyways. Um, so I guess wouldn't you want to at least 
explore okay, so the you, option of doing you, something that like ends happier. I see. Uh, yeah. So if you had the option to change it, what, could you? And I don't like. Or or is it more like? I, a, I feel like I feel like yes. I feel like you could. I I like she's. You know, she's choosing to live the life that she is seeing right now, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the life that she wants to live. It just happens to be that. But I feel like if you were to make a different choice, you could still travel to the future, see what that was like, come back. But it would happen instantaneously, you know? Right. Well, I wonder if it's like one of those things where you look at your own past, and it's like, would you change anything about your own past? And I feel like my answer to that is always, I, I don't think I would because I'm... I'm me as a result of my past and mm-hmm. I don't want to not be me. So I wonder if it's the same thing about looking at your future. She's like, now that I can perceive time in this way, these future events make me who I am. And that's, and, yeah. and you almost carry that through where you're like, I I, it makes you want to live that future even more. Yeah. So I don't know. I think it's interesting. It's uh, obviously one of the best, most thought provoking parts. Uh, and it's really hard for you to, to, it's really hard for you to conceptualize, you know, because, this is the thing that I want to talk about is, is how time is portrayed in this movie and also just time in general. Mm-hmm. Um, time, as I understand it, is our fourth dimension. We, we, are, we are fourth dimensional beings in a way. We live in three dimensions of space and a fourth dimension of time. Um, and we are stuck to time the same way that gravity sticks us to the Earth. So, I don't know. Uh, well, I'll talk about that in a second, but I think this is interesting because the movie says that time is an illusion and that it's just our way of interpreting the universe, but it's not necessarily how the universe operates. And there's another really good TED talk by a guy named Donald Hoffman. Um, and it is called, let me find it. It is called, do we see reality as it is? And I highly recommend this. I think about this all the time. Basically, I'll give you a rundown of this. He gives an example of this bee in Australia. There are these bees that are trying to mate with glass beer bottles because they think they're female bees. Obviously, they're not female bees, but during this, during the bees' evolution, it never had to differentiate between bee, bees, female bees, and bottles. So its facilities are unable to tell the difference. Like to, sim- to put it more simply, it's not built for a world that has glass bottles in it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Following me so far? Sure. Um. Hoffman extrapolates this to humans. How do we know what we're interpreting through our senses is really what's going on? You can ask yourself this age-old philosophical question. Are your eyes windows or cameras? And what kind of filters is your brain running to keep to help you understand the world? Yeah, I think about this all the time because I guess <laughs> especially when you just dumb it down to just colors. You're like, yeah. am I seeing the same red that you're seeing? Yes, no, that's, that is a really, really good example. And I think it's possible, although unlikely, that y- all of your senses could operate that way. Yeah. Like, you, you, you experience something soft, as some, like that experience of something being soft to touch is a different experience to something, someone else. Yeah, it's like, how would we ever give them that same, you know, without, we can try to describe it, but it's, it's not the same thing as actually feeling it. Yeah. sensing it yes exactly it eventually just come down to the same kind of words i mean the same thing with color color is almost impossible to describe without you know using other colors you know you can use the words like warm or or like dark and stuff but like even those are kind of vague and they don't necessarily portray exactly what you're thinking you know right okay um to continue with this hoffman says it's likely that we are interacting with the world as if through a, a computer desktop we aren't living we aren't using basic to live if that makes any sense you know basic as in like the computer programming language that oh. computers run on um wait we aren't using basic to live no we are interacting with out the interface of the universe as if it's a desktop when we zoom in on like little pieces we're just zooming in on individual pixels we're not actually getting any closer to the truth ah okay which i think it's pretty crazy <laughs> kind of scary <laughs> yes but it, i mean this is that's the whole thing by definition this is almost impossible for us to know obviously we, like our own understanding of the world is through the only understanding of the world is through our senses but our senses are unreliable 
the, the simply acknowledging that our perspective is limited is the first step to building things that can help us find the answers to these questions. Think about like gravitational waves. I mean, I'm not, I don't really know how gravitational waves work, but like, I assume it like literally bends everything to go with the wave. Like, how do you measure something that bends the things that you're looking at? It also like it bends your your ruler at the same time that it's bending the thing you're measuring. So, <laughs> right, it's it, it's, it's a, a little crazy. It's yes, it also bends my mind to even think about it. I guess. <laughs> so yeah, personally, I think that time does exist um, because of the second law of thermodynamics, because everything trends toward disorder, and because gravity is dependent on time. But I'm not an expert in physics, and maybe I'm right. But it could be for the wrong reasons. <laughs> well, uh, I, I don't even know the second. Well, I might. Second have... love is uh, everything just tends toward disorder. You can't unstir something. Ah, okay. Uh, well, totally outside of that. I, I think <laughs> I think time does exist, but I mean it's the fourth dimension, right? If there's some sort of fourth dimensional. Wait, are we fourth dimensional beings or three? Di- we're three-dimensional in space, but we exist in four dimensions. Well, it's I mean, like something that can perceive the fourth dimension differently than we do, something that yeah. exists in a higher dimension potentially could manipulate time. Like, I'm, I'm, I think that at least the concept of that makes sense to me. Um, so I think time exists, uh, but it's, we can only perceive it in one direction. Hmm. Uh, so, and, and it's so, like, getting into the idea of, like, multiple dimensions gets so freaking like hard to con- like conceptualize or at least to understand for me because yeah. you have to start perceiving things with senses you don't you, you don't, don't have. have yeah exactly so exactly. um but yeah that's it, it's so cool to open that up to the the possibility of not having time uh, be linear because that's the way we perceive it all the time obviously yeah yeah exactly i think about this all a lot and i mean it doesn't affect you in your everyday life. I mean, you still have to act like causality exists, but it's interesting to think like that maybe it doesn't, that, that, that there's things out there or that it's possible to somehow subvert that, you know? I don't know. To, in Slaughterhouse-Five, um, he describes it as the climbing down into the canyon of the past and up the mountain of the, of the future. That's poetic. It is. That is poetic. Okay. I think it's time for us to deliver our ratings. Ratings. Ratings.